You can count on me like one, two, three, says Bruno Mars. But today, everybody, we are talking about loyal devotion. We've been digging into this word hesed, which is the first description of God. The character of God is in hesed. And hesed has all these nuances to it. Today, it's loyal devotion. Now, I want to read to you the most quoted verses of all in the book of Ruth, right? This is it. Actually, these verses are so powerful. They're so moving. They find their way into wedding ceremonies all the time. This is what it says in Ruth chapter one, verses 16 to 18. Now remember, and, and if you've been tracking with this, Ruth is only four chapters long. So you can read this and get the story. But what has happened just before Ruth says these powerful words is Naomi, her mother-in-law says to Ruth, and to Orpah says, go back. There's nothing. I have nothing for you. Go back. And Orpah turns around and goes back to Moab. But Ruth then says this. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. You hear those verses from Scripture quoted often, as I said, in wedding ceremonies, but they also reflect Wedding vows. Like we say in the vows and what it was every wedding that I've ever done. All people, whether church people, non-church people, whatever, they, 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 they love these vows. And what does it say? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, until what? Until death do us part. Like, wow. What is it about us that like shoots for the moon? Can't we say, hey, look, until constant bickering does us part? No, no, no. Or arguments or I just don't like you anymore. Do us part. No. Why do we shoot for the moon? Everybody, we shoot for the moon because Hesed is what inspires us. Hey, we're inspired by Hesed, loyal devotion. We're inspired by that level that we see in Ruth because of this. We're wired for Hesed. Like that's in us. It just, it just gets inside of like if your brain was on an MRI scanner right now and you heard about Hesed or you saw Hesed, it would just fire up. We're inspired by Hesed because we're wired for Hesed. That is what today is all about. There used to be a commercial, uh, many, many years ago and it said it's Miller time, right? Beer. It's beer. It's Miller time. What is everybody? Hesed. It's Hesed time. This is what it's about today. We're getting into the core of what Hesed really, really is. Hesed means loving kindness. We've talked about that. It means to have compassion for somebody. But today, it is loyal devotion, and it moves us deeply. I saw a movie a number of years ago. This movie was made, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. It stars Richard Gere, and it's called Hachi. If you haven't seen Hachi, please make sure you see Hachi. It's the story of a dog. A dog shows up at a train station in Connecticut. It's a little puppy, little puppy, and the crate breaks open, and the dog runs away, and they can't catch the dog, and the dog is gone. Richard Gere plays a professor 
who works in New York City. He lives in Connecticut, takes the train every day. So he gets off the train train station in Connecticut on his way home, and he sees this little dog. He names the dog Hachi. His wife doesn't want the dog, but the little puppy wins everybody over, and he keeps the dog. Man, he loves that dog. And that dog is just so, so loyal to him. Every day, the dog would walk him to the train station. He'd get on the train. And at the end of the day, when he's come back home, he always took the same train. The dog would hear the... Right. And the dog would jump over the fence and come running, would always sit in the exact same place and just wait there. And then, boom, they'd walk home together. Well, one day after the dog is grown, Richard Gere gets up to teach a class, has a heart attack, dies. So that day, the dog is sitting outside the train station and Richard Gere doesn't show up. Now, they take the dog after the funeral to another place, to another home, but the dog escapes and comes back where? To that train station and sits right there at that spot, waiting, waiting. And he waits year after year after year, and he won't leave the train station. And the people in the town feed the dog, and the newspapers hear about it. They do a piece about the dog, Hachi, loyal devotion. Now, we watched this movie as a family. And there were some people in my family that were blubbering, crying because they were so deeply moved by this Hesed loyalty that they saw. Some people even had to leave the room. They were crying so hard. Why? Because Hesed moves us deeply. And when Ruth speaks these words, there's something inside of us that fires us just because our brain is wired for Hesed. So uh, let me just remind all of us of this real quick. The book of Ruth is here to help us interpret the scriptures correctly because the big difference in scriptures, people take the scriptures and do horrible things. People take the scriptures and do wonderful things, inspiring things, awesome things. What stands in the middle is interpretation. So here we have the book of Ruth that then helps us give us this clear picture, right? The difference between the Hubble, which was great, And the web, which is far greater, far clearer, that's what Ruth is doing. It's giving us that lens to look through so we can better understand the Bible, okay? Human hesed triggers divine hesed. Everybody wants to have an encounter with God. Everybody wants to experience that divine awesomeness of God coming through and showing up in their lives. That's the book of Ruth. When people reflect hesed, godly hesed, then by the end of Ruth, the fourth chapter, right, God shows up in just some awesome ways, and here is how it happens. The Bible has repeating words, as I said a few weeks ago. These repeating words, these repeating patterns, these repeating stories, like big flashing lights that are unique, that help us connect story to story to story. So last week, we talked about Lot and his daughters. You can't really understand the book of Ruth that helps us understand the rest of the Bible without understanding this terrible, disgusting story between Lot and his daughters, and today... This really sad, disturbing story between Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So what happens in the Bible in the book of Genesis? Genesis is basically about two major stories. You got Abraham and Sarah, and then you got Jacob and Joseph. And in the midst of the Abraham and Sarah, you get this unexpected digression, and you have this chapter on Lot and his daughters. 
which we talked about last week. And now you got this huge portion of scripture about Jacob and Joseph, and you got this chapter, Genesis 38 digression about something that's disturbing and disgusting about Judah. So, and then it's all resolved in Ruth. So we need to talk about what in the world is going on here so we can understand what is the Bible really trying to talk to us about today. All right. So Jacob, uh, Jacob was a very loyal person, but not loyal to everybody. He had a favorite son, he had many sons and he had a favorite son and gave him this special coat, which means he was very disloyal to his other sons. And that's the very sad part of the story. So he gives, he gives him this special code. He's not his oldest son. He's like way down the line. His name is Joseph. And Joseph is a talented guy. He's a handsome guy. You know, so many things about him, but he gives him this special robe and his other brothers hated him. And he had these dreams about how his brothers were going to bow down to him. And it was just really bad. And so all the brothers are out in the field working, right? They're way gone with the sheep somewhere. And Jacob, the father says to Joseph, Hey, look, your brothers are in Shechem. Go down and check on them. So Joseph, obviously, he doesn't have to go out and do the hard labor. He's around the house while these guys are out in the field all the time. But here's the thing. When Jacob tells his son, Joseph, his favorite son, to go down to Shechem, immediately we're concerned because Shechem is where really bad stuff happens. So you like brace yourself. Oh my gosh, something bad's getting ready to happen. And sure enough, it does. So they see him coming a long way off. And they said, look, here he comes. Let's kill him. And Reuben, the oldest, who's supposed to be the leader of all, says, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's throw him down in a pit. And then it says Reuben had the idea that he'll rescue him later so the brothers can't kill him. Okay, so that was the idea. And I don't know where Reuben went or whatever. But then Judah, who we're really talking about today, who's down the line, he's not first or second born. He's down the line, but obviously had charisma because everybody listening is, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's sell him. Let's make some money off of him. And so that's what they do. They sell him to a band of Ishmaelite traders and he goes down to Egypt. And so now he's gone. And then he says, look, let's take this goat. Let's kill the goat, dip his little special robe in the blood, and let's take him back to our father. Say, here you go. We found these. What do you think about this? And then, and then they do just that. And they bring this robe and they say to the father, do you recognize these? But the father says back to them. I mean, he's crushed like, oh my gosh, Joseph must be dead. But then he says these words, he says, I will never till the day I die, stop mourning for him. Now that makes sense, right? Because you, when you don't have closure, like, so he has, he has the robe and the blood and all that, but he doesn't really know he's dead. And actually he's not dead. He's living somewhere else, but he's dead to his dad. He's mourning forever. And the brother's seemingly maybe what it's trying to tell us here is they get upset with him because the next thing that happens right after that is Judah leaves. He leaves all the brothers and he goes and marries a Canaanite woman. So it's like, I'm going to stow, I'm going to go off and start my own thing. Like he's been rejected as the leader. And why is that? Okay, everybody, this is a really, really important question. And this is what Genesis 38 is going to explain to us. It's what the book of Ruth is explaining to us. How does Judah become the leader? What kind of leader do you want? Is this the type of leader that you want? Somebody who says, hey, let's not kill our brother. That's bad enough. Let's make him be miserable for his entire life. Let's sell him into slavery. So Genesis 38 is explaining how that happens. And the book of Ruth is explaining how. This is the type of leader we're looking for. Now, remember... 
King David, this long-awaited leader, comes from the line of Judah. It's through his line, not any of the other brothers. Doesn't come from Joseph, who's like Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. No, it comes from Judah. Why? And most important of all, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. What is it about Judah that says this is the type of leader that the world needs? This is the type of leader who is reflecting the hesed of Father Abraham. Well, here we go. Let's uh, let's check it out. Well, the first thing we've learned in Genesis 38 is that Judah separates from his brothers. Now, again, you brace yourself when you hear that. Because Lot separated from Abraham, really bad stuff happened. Elimelech separates at the beginning of Ruth from his brothers, really bad stuff happens. And now Judah's separating from his brothers. So brace yourself. Some really bad things are about to happen. Judah marries a Canaanite, starts a new family, is independent. He has three sons. Now you say, wait a minute. Remember I said a minute ago, repeating patterns? Who had three sons? Adam and Eve had three sons, right? Noah had three sons. Terah had three sons. So in Genesis, the pattern just keeps repeating. We're like, ah, okay, all right, all right. We're bringing a lot of stuff here together. Here's the names of his sons. Er, E-R. You know what it means? It means to be awake or wake up. So awake. So he has a son named Awake. And then he has Onan, which means grief. And then he has Shela, which means to be drawn out of the womb. All right. So the oldest, Er, marries a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And we are told that God is so displeased with awake, Ur, that he kills Ur. Now, tradition says that Ur was so enamored with how beautiful Tamar was that he would not consummate the marriage because he didn't want her getting pregnant to mar her beauty in any way. Now, we don't know if that's true, but we do know that God kills him. That's all we do know. So now, what is supposed to happen? In that culture, what would happen, the way that you showed loyalty, remember, the whole thing goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Will you be your brother's keeper? Will you keep his name, his legacy alive? Onan, the next son, grief, is to marry Tamar and to keep Awake's name truly alive. So is he dead? I don't know. He's awake. I'm not sure. Okay. This is the story. So he goes in and we're told instead of, so he consummates the marriage in this case, but it says he spills his seed on the ground and God is so angry at him that he's disloyal to his brother and he's dishonoring to Tamar. God kills him. Now, Judah is faced with this decision. He is supposed to give the third son, Shelah, to Tamar so that he can continue the task to honor and have loyal devotion to Ur, the oldest brother, awake. He says, oh, no, honey, there's something wrong with Tamar. I'm not giving a third son away to him. Now, let's let's time out for just a second. Okay, everybody. Um, what's going on here? Do you really name your kids awake, grief, and drawn out of the womb? I mean, is that really what you do? All right, so the Bible gives names to emphasize somebody's role. Right? Do you really think that the parent, in this case, Judah, and his unnamed wife, whoever she was, the Canaanite, really named him awake or grief. Or like we talked about, Malon, right? Elimelech and Naomi's oldest and Kilion, right? So sickness and destruction. Did they really name them that? 
here's what's really typical and here's what helps us so much to understand and interpret scripture. We are given these names so that we can understand the role that they're playing. And I hope that'll really come into play for you in just a minute. But the point here is, everybody, is loyal devotion. We are attracted to that point of Hesed very much. Matter of fact, at the very end of Ruth, in chapter 4, the last chapter, in verses 5 and verses 10, it says that Ruth does all of this, has all of this Hesed, so that the name of her dead husband can carry on. So this is about legacy. Are we into legacy? Oh, we're into legacy. You know how I know this? Uh, well, we talked about Ruth and weddings and vows and all that stuff, but I just recently went to see Hamilton. You know, this play that all the hippest people in the world have seen, this musical, Hamilton, because it's the thing that everybody does. I mean, it's so awesome. It's so cool, right? There is a song that I'm there, and obviously many people at the Kennedy Center had already seen this uh, song before. It was a big deal. But there's a song called The Room Where It Happens, The Room Where It Happens. And there's a line in that song where Alexander Hamilton says this, exactly, I want to build something that outlives me. That's legacy. And then he says to Aaron Burr, when Burr is introduced, it's like, boo. Everybody was booing Burr. He's the bad guy. And Hamilton, after he says, I want to build something that outlives me, he looks at Burr and says, what do you want to build, Burr? Like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do, Burr? Right? Because what it's juxtaposing there is somebody who has loyal devotion for something and somebody who has loyal devotion for nothing. Legacy. And everybody at the Kennedy Center, obviously it moves Washingtonians like, yeah, and they're clapping and they're excited. It's awesome because legacy has it moves us very, very deeply. This is what's going on. So Onan, the second born son, he is disloyal and that is his downfall. Now you might say, wait a minute, John, time out. Does God kill people? And I would say from the scriptures, that's not the point. That's not the genre of this literature. We're missing the point if we think it's all about that. All right. Remember. Er, awake, grief, drawn out of the womb, Malon, Kilion, sickness, destruction. You don't name your kids that. What's the story really all about? So here's the thing. Kilion means to destroy something, to bring it to completion in a negative way. Daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, same root word to bring something to completion. You can bring something to completion in a negative way by destroying it or a positive way like my dreams came true. It's the same root word. Now, everybody, and you can check this up. Who does Ruth marry? And who does Orpah marry? So Ruth marries Malon and Orpah marries Kilian. This is why this matters so much. So they're on the road to go back. And Ruth says, I am loyally devoted to you. I am not turning my back. The name Ruth means friend. She continues on. Orpah, which means back of the neck, turns around and goes back. She's married to Kilian. Kilion means destruction. Because she didn't continue on, his name, his legacy was destroyed. And because Ruth, the friend, continued on in the path of loyal devotion, she brought back to life. See, Malon is sick. But that doesn't mean he can't come back to life. So he's brought back to life. Everybody, this is what the deep meaning of these stories are telling us. And it gives us all these clues with these names and these repeating patterns over and over again. Now, how does that make sense in the story that we're looking at now?
Okay, that's a lot of names, a lot of information. Let me just let me just bring it in. I just want to show you how all these stories just keep repeating over top of each other, letting us know how to best interpret what the Bible is really all about. And it is so much about Hesed. Okay, Judah has three sons. Two of the sons are dead. Now, in order to be a person of loyal devotion, Hesed, he needs to send the third son in. For the name of his firstborn dead son, awake, er. But he refused. I'm not sending. No, no, no. Something wrong with Tamar. She bad. <laughs> I am not sending it. Who else has two dead sons? His father, Jacob. Jacob has two dead sons. Joseph is a slave in Egypt. Now, he thinks he's dead. He's alive. He's awake. But he's dead. He's awake, but he's dead. So, famine hits. And... Jacob says to all of his boys, go down, except for Benjamin, his next favorite son, all right? Put all the other boys out there, risk their lives, go down there. They meet Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. He says, who's your dad? And he asks him all these questions. And then he keeps the second born son for himself. And he sends the other brothers back. Again, they don't know it's Joseph because there's a famine and Joseph has all the food. Right. He goes back and they say, hey, look, we can't get any more food unless we bring this third son, Benjamin, down. Jacob has two dead sons now. He's got Joseph and he's got Simeon, who is in jail in Egypt. He says, no way. So Reuben, the leader. Right. Reuben, the firstborn, says, dad, Jacob, listen, I promise I will bring Benjamin back. And if I don't, you can kill my two sons. Oh my gosh, come on. Are you kidding me? We just keep going around and around with these two sons. Now, that's not Hesed, is it? It's not Hesed. Hesed is when I'll sacrifice me. I'll give myself as a personal guarantee. And so that didn't do anything for Jacob. Jacob's like, no way. So finally, the one person who also has two dead sons, Judah, goes to his father who has two dead sons, Jacob, and says, I promise you, send your favorite son, Benjamin, right? This Risking a third dead son. Send him with me. Then check this out. Here's the final clincher. And I promise I will be personally responsible. Now that's Hesed. That's loyal devotion. And it is only then that Jacob says, go down there. Now listen, all of Jacob's hopes and dreams, he gets both of his sons back if he will sacrifice the third son to go down there. It's like a full on all you can eat buffet. He gets his two sons back, Joseph and Simeon. I mean, it's incredible, but he's got to, he's, he's, he's two thirds of the way there. Two thirds, two thirds of the way there. But he's got to, Judas in the same boat. Ur's dead, Onan's dead, and he's holding back Sheila. So what is going to happen? Well, everybody, this is where jaw-dropping loyal devotion comes in. Tamar. Tamar takes bold action. Hesed. She teaches Judah what it means to be a true leader. What type of leader is our world looking for? What type of leader is a godly leader? What type of leader would be a christ following Jesus leader. It's a person who is thoroughly, not halfway, not one third, two thirds, but is all the way there, completely baked. Hesed. And she teaches, she takes bold action. 
She dresses up like a prostitute. Many people call what Ruth did and now hear what Tamar does as Hesed and Hutzpah. Hesed and Hutzpah. You know what Hutzpah means? I won't explain. You can look it up for yourself. She dresses up like a prostitute because she hears that Judah's wife has passed away. She knows it's sheep shearing time. She puts herself along his path. She's dressed up. She has a veil covering her face. And he says to her in very crude language, propositions her. She says, what will you pay me? He says, I'll pay you a goat. She says, where's the goat? I don't have the goat. He says, I'll get a goat for you. Why didn't he have a goat? Because he used the goat earlier to kill the goat, get the blood, and to put it on Joseph's pretty little coat that he had, right? And have a goat. But what he happens to have is all his identification and this cord and this ring, all these things. That's basically what a king carries around with him. Why would he have a king stuff? Because kings are supposed to come from Judah, but he's not much of a leader right now. He's unfit until until Tamar teaches him what it means to be the type of leader that God is looking for. All right. So they have sex. She gets pregnant. She goes on the way. He has no idea who she is. Right. And so three months later, they say to Judah, hey, you know, that daughter-in-law of yours, she's pregnant. He's like, she's pregnant. She's been out you know, like a whore? He says, bring her out and burn her. No investigation whatsoever. Just burn her. Kill her. She deserves to die. Doesn't even bother to ask her anything. Do you want a leader like that? Absolutely not. You know what she does? She takes all the identification that he had given her. He says, would you please take this to my father-in-law, Judah, and ask him this question. Do you recognize these? Now, everybody, those are the exact same words in Hebrew that they asked Jacob when they presented the bloody coat of Joseph. And now all of a sudden, boom, and here it is, right? This is a turning point. This is it. This is it right here, everybody. This is why Judah becomes the leader. This is why the loyal southern part of Israel is known as Judah. This is why King David comes from the tribe of Judah. And this is why Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Because for the first time in all of Scripture, somebody publicly confesses to unrighteousness. It's right here in Genesis 38. He says, she is more righteous than I. This has never happened before. It's the first time he confesses. That's the type of leader we have. Somebody who is willing to publicly repent of their unrighteousness and say, I am wrong and changes course. She's more righteous than I, chooses her path of hesed, loyal devotion. It's the first time it ever happened. And that is why this happens right here. Human hesed triggers divine hesed. All the great things then can happen from there. Now we can get King David. Now we can get Jesus Christ. But it's because of this human hesed triggering divine hesed. Everything he needed was right there in Tamar. He thought that she was the problem. She wasn't the problem. She was the answer he needed to learn. Now, we are inspired by hesed because we are wired for hesed. And human hesed triggers divine hesed. Everybody, where do you need to be devoted? Is there, is there some area in life where you need to show, show some loyal devotion? Do you need to complete something? Do you need to stick with something? Do you need to stick with a friendship or a relationship? Do you need to make amends to something? Is there some place in your life, there always seems to be, where we need to have that commitment and that loyal devotion? Far too often in our world, we are not committed. Like, we have this fear of commitment, like a little bit here and then I'll leave and a little bit here and a little bit here, but we're not fully committed. You will never, if you want to live an uninspired life, then never commit to anything. 
Do you want to live a full-on life? Do you want to see God show up in your life in amazing ways? Then be committed, loyally devoted, be full-on hesed to the right things. Now, I want to remind you of one last scripture verse before I end. It's found in the book of Philippians. It says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to do what? To complete it. What do you need to complete? What do I need to complete? It's our turn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us all to be full-on committed to you so that, God, all the wonderful things you want to do in and through our lives will be realized. In Christ's name, amen.